Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. This is our second of two episodes for the April 2015 Noir at the Bar in Chicago. On the previous episode, just one episode back if you didn't listen to it, uh, you got to hear Jedediah Ayers and Libby Fisher-Hellman. This episode, we're bringing you Heath Lawrence and Dan O'Shea. Yep, so all this went down, as Rob mentioned, um, just a few short days ago, April 30th, Sylvie's Lounge. We do talk a little bit about Sylvie's in the previous episode. We talk a little bit about my drive down and my drive back before we get into this. Oh, man, it had to have been captivating. I So here's <laughs> one of my favorite things about going to these things in Chicago is that I hang out with Kevin Lynn Helmick and we shoot the shit and like shit talk people the whole way there and then the whole way back. <laughs> So as much as I enjoy the readings, I think I would enjoy them a little less if I had to fly solo and didn't have Kevin, uh, you know, riding shotgun. So, do you should talk to people from the reading on the way back, or is there? Can you dig? Can you give us a little? Sometimes we. I don't want to be specific about this. So sometimes maybe we would never shit talk people who read. I got to tell you, this time there was no shit talk by it because everybody that read was goddamn phenomenal. And you know what? Go back and listen to the dozen other readings we've done, whatever many. Hear if I've ever actually said that. Or if I very tactfully said, yeah, some of the readers are really good. Yeah, you probably mostly said the, the latter. Not a lot. Not much of the former, I think. Yep. So, um, But this time we are bringing you Heath Lawrence, who is uh, my first time uh, meeting him. I'm not very familiar with his work, but I got to tell you, after hearing his story... Um, I, I might have to get myself a little more familiar. I really like Heath's story. I can't tell you, he had a really good... Um, this is this is interesting, too. He had a really good reading presence. He had a good um, a voice for it, and like the cadence and the way he read was all good and everything. Did he tell you this was only the second time he's ever read? No, you've got to be kidding, because I mean, yeah. he comes off as a seasoned veteran. Yeah, he nailed it, but uh, he has only done one reading before this one, and it was... Um, uh, it's up on his website. Uh, if if you want to check it out, uh, it's I don't think it's the same story, but it was like an eight nine minute thing, so nothing really big. But for someone who's only stood up in front of an audience one other time, and and you know read, he did a great job, especially considering he knew he was being recorded, so he had to be a little extra nervous about that. So I, I you know, hats off to that guy. Yeah, no kidding. Hey, and then after that, Dan O'Shea. And here's the thing. I've never uh, never heard Dan O'Shea read. I, I meet, I've met him a couple of times. And you know, I was thinking about this. We reviewed three different books by that guy. That puts him in the top. <laughs> what I mean, I mean sir, how many other people have we reviewed three books by? Uh, it's a small list. I would say less than five people. Oh, well, yeah. It's easily less than five. So um, very, very familiar with Dan O'Shea. But uh, this was my first time uh, getting to hear him read. And he also reads just exceptionally well. I'm holding... Um the Noir at the Bar Anthology in my hand because that's what he read from. Uh, mm-hmm. Thin Mints was the story. and like So essentially what happens is he gets up to the microphone and I see he's holding the Noir at the Bar Anthology and I was like, oh, thank God. I was so excited because I knew exactly what story it was and I remember just loving it when I read it. So it was very exciting to, to, see, to, to see and capture him reading the story. Yeah, good, good stuff. So um, I guess there's not a whole lot else to say. Um, here's more of us talking and introducing Heath Lawrence, and then um, right after that, Dan O'Shea. Right, our next reader is uh, Heath Lawrence. Um, this is his bio that we pulled from, I'm guessing, his own website. He is the author of, I don't remember, I pulled this all together, <laughs> Sleepy Haze. He's the author of Hawthorne, Tales of 
excuse me, Hawthorne, Tales of a Weirder West, City of Heretics, The Bastard Hand, Fight Card, Love City Brawler, as uh, Jack Tunney, and Ten, I'm sorry, Dig Ten Graves. Is a bit like three beers <laughs> in the last 15 minutes. The words are sweet. Well, yeah. His work has appeared at Crime Factory, Shotgun Honey, Cheezine, Pulp Metal, The Nautilus Engine, and others. He has been a movie theater manager, a tour guide at Sun Studio, a singer in a punk band, and a regular donor of blood for money. He lives in Lansing, Michigan. Everybody heat. Nearsighted. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Ow! So it better without the glasses. But anyway, the story is based on a couple of guys um, uh, that uh, that were regulars at this hospital. I guess that's all the introduction the story really needs. But it's called uh, Five Bucks Buys Some Goddamn Vodka. The first big mistake I made that day was giving my money to Timmy Weber to hold on to. It was a $5 bill some college chickie gave me that afternoon because she thought I was panhandling, when all I was doing really was sitting there on the curb wondering where I was going to get some money for another pint. Mono from fucking heaven, right? So I was shuffling my way to the liquor store. I say shuffling, not to be cutesy, but because walking hurts my hips like a cunt and I can only shuffle. <laughs> when out of the store comes Timmy Weber with a big fucking smile on his face and a fifth, a fifth of barrel vodka in his narrowed hand. Now, Timmy, everyone knows he's got what you call anger management issues, especially when he's drunk, which, like me, is most of the fucking time. When I think of him now, I think of a red face, thick lips twisted in rage, his little blood eyes bulging. The guy, he'd fly off the handle over anything. He always wanted to fight somebody, even though I'd never seen him win one. He sure got the fuck beat out of him on a regular basis, though. He'd spent so long acting like the world was against him that eventually it was. But just then he was mostly sober, and so not in a blind rage. He saw me and said, Clint, Clint, Clinty, and tucked the bottle into his shirt. How are you, my man? Well, I said, shrugging, you know. Yeah, yeah. You got a bottle, huh? Hey, fuck you. I'm just saying you got a bottle. Fuck you, Clinty. Jesus, man, what's your damage? This is my bottle and I ain't sharing it, so fuck you. I shrugged again and went to shuffle past him. I don't need you, I said, I got my own money. The Arab who owned the store came out of the doorway right before I got in. He crossed his arms and said, you two clear out, I don't need that kind of language here, I have customers, decent people. I said, I'm a customer, goddammit, I got money, I want to buy a pint. Go somewhere else. What the fuck, I said, 
It hurt my chest to raise my voice, but I was pissed. Take my money and give me a pint of arrow. Get out of here before I call the police. You, you're prejudiced, you asshole. Get out. Every time you come in, I can't get the stinky you out of my store all day. Even though the A-Rab was talking to me, Timmy was starting to take it personal. He stepped up, face turning bright red. Said, hey, fuck you, you fucking camel jockey. I'll kick your... The A-Rab punched Timmy in the face. Timmy stumbled back into a parked car, clutching his nose. Blood streamed between his fingers. The A-Rab said, leave before I rip your stinking heart out, you piece of shit. We left. So I had five bucks and couldn't buy any booze because the next closest store was over six blocks away. I couldn't walk that distance. My hips hurt too much. That's what led to me giving my $5 bill to Timmy. It was like a bargain and all that. He'd share the fifth with me, then later would use the fiver to buy some more. That was the plan, anyway. We went to this shitty little park on the next block, sat on a picnic table facing Michigan Avenue, and passed the bottle back and forth. Timmy took two swigs for every one I got, but I wasn't in a position to argue about it. He's an angry little loudmouth pussy, yeah, but he could still kick my scrawny ass. I hate those fucking Arabs, Timmy said. Bunch of terrorists and shit. I said, did you know those Muslims think that when they die, they go to heaven and get 72 virgins? Timmy said, virgins? Why the fuck would anyone want 72 virgins? When I go to hell, I want 72 whores. 72 dirty, filthy whores. That made me laugh. I started busting a gut, laughing so hard I started choking. Timmy took advantage of that to take a couple extra swigs. I coughed up something bloody and wiped my chin with the back of my hand, and we both pretended not to notice the blood. It took maybe 15 minutes to kill the bottle. In that time, Timmy made less and less sense every time he opened his mouth. By the time we were down to a couple swigs, he was weaving on his ass and mumbling crazy shit to himself. His fingers went slack around the bottle, and I caught it right before it fell. I knocked back the rest of it and looked at Timmy just in time to see him slump over and fall right off the table. He lay there face down and didn't move. Ha, I said, fucking pussy. The city's finest chose that moment to drive by. They hit their lights and pulled the bike and white to the curb, and two burly uniforms climbed out. Afternoon, Clint, one of them said, smiling and hinching his thumbs on his belt. Oh, well, hi there, I said. Is that Timmy there, face down in his own piss? Well, I said, yeah. He had a little too much, huh? Yeah. You boys decided to have a few drinks for a change? Yeah. The other cop was as big as the one talking to me, but it was a chick. She leaned into the squad car and used the radio to call an ambulance. I took the chance to admire her big fat ass and actually got a little wood. While we waited for the ambulance to come, the cops talked all friendly and condescending to me, and I pretended I didn't notice and just smiled and nodded and all that shit. But in my mind, I was busy burying my face in that monster cop booty. I wasn't even thinking about my five bucks, not right then. It wasn't until the ambulance arrived and they started loading Timmy in the end that I remembered. Uh, hey, I said, climbing down off the picnic table. Wait a minute. The cops and the ambulance guys turned to me. Officer Big Ass said, what is it, Clinty? My mind kind of went blank. I almost, I almost mentioned my five bucks, but knew somehow that'd be the wrong thing to say, and they wouldn't give a shit. So I said again, wait a minute. One of the ambulance guys said, you need medical attention, Clint? You need us to take you to the hospital? I, shrugged, I struggled to come unstuck. I had mixed feelings about the hospital. Fucking cops and fucking ambulances would pick me up four or five times a week and drop me off there, see? And sometimes the nurses and shit were nice to me, but other times they acted like cocksuckers. They hated Timmy, though. 
Timmy always got belligerent there, calling everyone filthy names and swinging his fists until security would finally escort him out. But with me, they were usually cool, as long as I didn't cause a scene. They'd talk down to me and make old jokes about how I smelled and all that, but that shit didn't bother me, really. The other ambulance guy said, well, you need us to take you to the hospital? I said, well, you know, Timmy's my buddy. I gotta look after my buddy and make sure nothing happens to him. We can't take you unless you need medical attention. And I need medical attention, yeah. They all looked at each other, smirking. Okay, one said, get in, but don't piss yourself in the ambulance again. In the ambulance, I had a flake out time. It's just some shit that happens to me sometimes. I just sort of black out with my eyes open, if you know what I mean. And when I come back, time has passed, a few minutes usually, but more than a couple times I lost a day or two. This time it was just a few minutes, because when I snapped back, we were pulling up in front of the ER. Timmy was still out cold, and I looked at him and thought about my five bucks. They wheeled Timmy in, and I came shuffling through the automatic doors behind him, trying to keep up. My five dollar bill was in Timmy's side pocket, and I was thinking about how hard it would be to just swoop in there, grab it, and get the fuck out again. But no, the fuckers watched me like a hawk and I wasn't fast enough to make a getaway. Putting a fine point on it, the security guard veered up in my peripheral vision and said, Afternoon, Clint. How you doing? Well, I said, you know. He nodded and I nodded, and he snapped on his rubber gloves and patted me down. I realized that at some point I'd pissed myself, but the guard didn't even grimace. He was as used to that shit as I was, I guess. They wheeled Timmy on down the hall, and I tried to pick up the pace a little. By the time I caught up, they were lugging him onto a narrow hallway bed, the same place I'd been more times than I could count. A couple people in scrubs were trying to talk to him, but he'd only mumble and grumble and drop a couple slurred F-bombs. They attached an IV to his arm and a blood pressure thing and all that shit, and finally someone looked at me and said, How you feeling, Clinty? You don't seem so bad. I'm fine, I said. I'm just looking after my buddy. He's my buddy. I gotta watch his back. You don't seem too messed up. Not for you, anyway. That's because I ain't. I'm looking for my, after my pal. Are you feeling sick? No, goddammit, I just told you. And then I remembered that they wouldn't let me stay there if there was nothing wrong with me. I tried to backpedal, but I'm not really good at what you call thinking on my toes and all. So I wound up just kind of stammering and stuttering. The nurse lady said, you're going to have to leave, Clint. We'll look after Timmy. I ain't going nowhere, I said, close to panicking. I'm staying right here looking after my buddy. No, the bitch said, you're not. Just like that, cool as fuck. I'm staying right here with my buddy, you assholes. <laughs> Before I even knew it, a bunch of security people were all over me, grabbing me by the arms and forcibly leading me out. I screamed and kicked, but they were strong as goddamn bulls. I said, wait a minute, let me just get my money, goddammit. He has my $5 bill in his pocket. Let me just get it. Come on, oh, goddamn all of you, he's got my money. But they wouldn't listen. They dragged me right out of there, kept going until we were off hospital property. One of them says, don't come back here tonight, Clint, unless you want to get arrested for trespassing. You assholes! They left me there in the corner by the bus stop, sauntered away in a pack like the bunch of blue uniform Nazi fucks they were. I screamed at their backs for a few seconds, and then started coughing. I spit a gobble of blood at a passing car, but it was some scared teenage girl driving, so she didn't stop. I sat down on the bench trying to get my thoughts in order. They'd have to let me in the ER again if I was sick or the fucking cops found me drunk, but I didn't have any money to buy booze. I'd have to beg some change, so that's what I did. A half hour later, I had two bucks and some coins, so I braced myself for the painful trip and walked all the way to the liquor store, the one I didn't want to walk to earlier. By the time I got there, 45 minutes later, 
my hips hurt so bad and I was so goddamn sober I wanted to kill myself. But I'd made it. I bought a pint of the cheapest, nastiest vodka they had and made my way behind the place and quenched my thirst. I'd get so drunk, I thought, the cops would have to take me to the ER and I could get my goddamn five bucks. So I guess I passed out because the next thing I knew, it was morning and I was sprawled out behind the liquor store soaking in my own piss again. The cops never found me. I sat up and waved my fist at the orange sun. Ah, you fuckers, I said. You cocksuckers. But I couldn't remember what I was mad about. <laughs> I saw Timmy Weber about a week later, and we were talking for a while before I remembered about the money. I mentioned it, and he got all pissed off, called me a liar, and threatened to kick my ass. I shrugged and walked away from him. It wasn't that important, I guess. But I tell you what, I'm never drinking with that fucker again. <laughs> Crazy coincidences every time that I do one of these with Lucas. My advice to him is don't piss yourself in the ambulance again. That <laughs> Clint might be my new favorite character. That's all I have to say. Our fourth and final reader this evening is Dan O'Shea. Here's a very interesting bio. In a little over a year, Exhibit A published three of Dan's novels, Penance, Greed, and Rotten at the Heart. The last under the pen name Bartholomew Daniels. Exhibit A then promptly went under, making Dan the only writer present to pretty much single-handedly put a publisher out of business. <laughs> he is currently working on his next novel and deciding which publisher to trash next. We'll keep that to ourselves. Everybody, Dan O'Shea. <laughs>
Anyway, I'm throwing a little shindig for Big Al and his people at the state joint in town, welcoming them to the Truecore family. We got Big Al and his wife. We got a couple of guys from the shop floor I worked the specs with, a couple of office pukes. And we got Big Al's office girl, Liz, who's given Linda a run in the smoking hot department, but with a harder, don't fuck with me here, but always got me a little stiff when I'd make my quarterly sales stuff. So the dinner wraps up, Big Al and his crew are all climbing into their SUVs, Linda and I are about to head across the parking lot back to the Holiday Inn, and Liz walks over. You guys aren't calling it a night already, are you? A little smirk, a little challenge in her voice. I look at Linda, she gives me this year the boss shrug, and I say, you mean there's still something open in this burg? And she says, I know a place. So we go to this shit-ass roadhouse, and we have some drinks, and Liz pulls out this baggie and says, try some of this. And I figure, what the fuck? So I'd done the pot thing back at school at Madison, I never had a problem with it, and it's customer relationships, right? So I take a little too. And I become a god. I've always been a bright guy with a decent light of bulb, but suddenly all of my synapses are firing in sequence, my brain is a luminescent overlord, my tongue is hotwired to the ancestral font of all knowledge, and I've got spider senses like Peter Parker. 45 minutes and several toots all around later, we're back at the Holiday Inn. Linda's face down and Liz, I'm balls deep in Linda, and I'm thinking of that U2 song where that Bono guy keeps saying he still hasn't found what he's looking for. And I know for the first time in my life I have. That crank at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and I'll be leaving my mother and my father and my wife and my kid and my house and my mortgage and whatever else you've got and cleaving under this shit, because this shit right here in this little baggie. Oh, fuck, can it really be almost gone? I gotta hurry up and come so I can get out with Liz and score some more of this. This shit right here holds the universe entire with each and every shiny little crystal. So, yeah, I like meth a little. And it's not like the wheels jumped off the bus right there. For six months, I had a good run. For six months, I had a fucking excellent run. A little too before a call, and I could sell bacon to a rabbi. So I'm closing deals and making Linda sandwiches all over the upper Midwest. Then Linda wraps her jet around a light pole, goes into rehab, and files the lawsuit, harassment, and such. The wife comes home from the dock, asking how come she's got the clap. I get fired, I get divorced, and a couple months later I'm living in this $350 a month dump of a farmhouse outside Fenimore with Mopes and his meth skank shareholders down to about 90 pounds in the last five or six teeth. Whole new lifestyle. <laughs> Which brings us to the Girl Scout cookies. Flash forward a couple of years. I'm sitting at the table in the kitchen at Shea Meth reading a two-day-old Platteville journal because it feels normal. You can score a newspaper out of the trash pretty easy, so it's free. You make yourself a cup of coffee, sit down in the morning with the sunlight's coming in through the windows, it's March, so the twins are down at Fort Myers, you can read up on do they have a chance this year. Just for a minute or two, you feel like you could walk out in the driveway and talk about taxes and shit next to the minivan. That is until the meth goddess wraps her talons around your balls again and you get back to your true vocation, which is scoring more crank. Anyway, the big feature of the day is a local kid who's closing in on the Girl Scout cookie sales record better than 17,000 boxes. And that tickles the sales guy part of my brain, so I read on. <clears throat> Turns out they don't go door to door so much anymore. They go in retail, lay in inventory, sell boxes on folding tables in front of local businesses. And there's a picture of the kid with mom. Kid looks like she's maybe 13, and I'm hot Alyssa Milano at the tail end of Who's the Boss 13 at that, and you can see why, because <laughs> mom is probably late 30s, and she's one primo milf. I reach behind and grab a spoon off the counter and chuck it at Cheryl who's sleeping on the sway-bottom sofa we picked up off the curb on trash day, maybe six months back. What do you want, she grumbles. How much do those thin mints you bought cost you? Oh man, don't start in on that shit again. 
Cheryl would come home maybe a week back with a box of Thin Mints and most would beat her ass pretty good on account you could get three times as many Hydrox for the same coin if you really needed cookies. Also on account of most just tended to beat her ass pretty good. I'm not starving, I just want to know something I saw in the paper. I don't know, four bucks I think, I fucking earned the money, you know. I knew. Pretty much every guy in Grant County knew it. You saw Linda walking down the street and you could find a dumpster or something to stand behind and she'd suck you off for five bucks. Four bucks a box. That miraculous lucidity I'd felt a couple years back was long gone. Pretty much needed twice as much crank now just to turn the motor over. But the numbers part of my brain still worked just fine. Four bucks a crack at 17,000 boxes of $68,000. I wasn't so far gone that I thought the kid would have 70 large in one of those green Girl Scout pencil case type things. I remember my sister carrying her loot around down when she was going door to door at Madison back in the 80s. And she got mostly checks anyway, but this retail model felt like a cash business, an impulse purchase thing. You walk out of the store, there's this cute kid who doesn't like business, right? So you plunk down in four bucks. It's not like the kid's going to take your debit card, and hell, most people don't even carry their checkbooks anymore. And Girl Scout cookie season only ran like six, eight weeks, so the kid had to be doing a couple thousand boxes a week, and with school in session, she had to be doing most of it on weekends. And this was the last weekend, the big push for the record, and that was going to get the local populace's Rotary Club hearts all the Twitter. Paper said she'd be set up outside the Piggly Wiggly on 81 all day, Saturday and Sunday. Banks out here in East Bumblefuck don't stay open late on weekends, so I was betting by Sunday night Alyssa and, the, uh, Alyssa and the MILF would be holding the whole weekend's haul. Figure a couple thousand boxes and four bucks a pop, you're looking at eight grand minimum. You really think so? Eight fucking large? I just run the scenario for most, as I was bugging out. Yeah, at least eight large. Ten or twelve would surprise me. Soft target, too. I was big on soft targets. Most got his mitts on some beat-to-fuck 38-wheel gun and four bullets a couple of months back. We took a run at a gas station down to a gradio, and the 60-year-old woman behind the counter came up with a side-by-side, blew out the window while we were hauling ass out to the store. I was picking glass fragments out of my head for like a week, and fucking most bottles let go in my car, which hasn't smelled right since. I'm not cut out to be Dillinger and Mopes. Most just didn't cut out right. Mopes sat at the table staring at the picture in the paper. I want to do the kid. Fucking look at that sweet meat. I had to squeeze my eyes shut for a minute. They say you can choose your friends, but once you get in bed with the meth goddess, you're pretty much stuck with her other acolytes, and every one of them's at least as fucked up as you are. We're not doing any kids, folks. You in charge now or something? We went through this every time. Of course I was in charge. Mopes IQ had been on the bottom half, the wrong side of the bell curve to begin with, and he'd been on meth a solid year before I started. I wasn't sure what would go first, Mopes' last brain cell, Cheryl's last tooth. Yeah, Mopes, I'm in charge, think it over. You got no car, you got no plan, and when you do your next jolt, you want to do it with a short-eyes jacket, you have to pull on that kind of train? Mopes tried to give me the hard face, but his eyes got all droopy, finally he looked down. Yeah, okay, we do it your way, but you gotta admit that kid is hot. A little twinge for me, because I had to listen to Milano thought to begin with, but that had been an abstract deal, right? I mean, it wasn't like I was thinking, do the kid, it was just an observation. On her way to hot mode, she wanted to look around five years, be my guest. Late Saturday afternoon, recon. Mopes and I are cruising 80 and 81, staying close. We dropped Cheryl off at the quick trip across the parking lot to the Piggly Wiggly. She hung out there, she hung out there a lot anyway. She was going to call when they started packing up the cookie show. 
spent maybe five minutes in the lot of the pig after we dropped Cheryl checking out the proceedings. A little banner over the cookie table read, Support the Girl Scouts and bring the record to Platteville. The locals were doing their best. By Sunday, ten grand easy. Had to be. I just made the turn off ridge back south when 80 when Cheryl called. They were loading up a blazer, red, vanity plates, pack fan. Once I followed him down, uh, followed him through town on 81 and then out toward Lancaster. Ten minutes north of town, they turned in on a long gravel drive leading downhill to a small white ranch house. Perfect, half a mile at least to the neighbors. We cruised into Lancaster, full dark on the way back. I doused the lights and turned into the drive, stopping about 100 yards in. Stay put, I told Mopes, I'll just be a minute. I walked down the drive. The blazer was parked at the side of the house next to a little porch, a side door, kitchen probably. Run down middle outbuilding off to the left. Enough room to park the car behind that, you wouldn't see it pulling in. Get up next to the house, took a peek through the window, the kitchen, a little counter, family room. Alyssa and Milf were curled up on the sofa watching America's Funniest Home Videos. We headed back to pick up Cheryl. She'd probably make a few bucks waiting. <laughs> Sunday, just after 6 p.m. Mopes and I sat behind the outbuilding in my Malibu. Last thing I still owned from before the divorce, except for some clothes that were all too big on me on account of the meth will take your mind off of food for like a week at a time. Speaking of which, we just tweaked the last of our stash. I wanted to be sharp for this. Most days now, all I could afford was just enough crank to keep me from tearing my own skin off. But we got the call from Cheryl. Alyssa and the milk were on their way. So I'd taken a big hit, gotten all the way back inside the meth goddess temple where my mind was filled with golden light and I was seated in the bath of her chemical love. Plan was this. As soon as we saw the lights start down the drive, we get out of the car, rush them as they hit the side door, get them in the house, grab the cash, duct tape them to a couple of chairs, rip the phone out, take any souls they've got, and hit the road. That was the plan. Now Moses has got the girl, Mom's got the Remington, and I'm all the way outside from that goddess temple trying to figure out how to unscrew this. There wasn't any cash, that was a thing. Turns out the manager at the pig locks up in the safe for them on weekends so they can take it to the bank on Monday. And when Mopes hear that, he says he ain't leaving with nothing, and the thing he's leaving with is the kid's cherry, and he grabs the kid, and he shoves the gun up under her chin, and he starts pawing at the front of her blouse, trying to get at the buttons. But the badge sash is getting in the way, and then Mom starts screaming, no, don't do that, I got money, and she runs to the broom closet, and instead of cash, what she comes out with is the pump gun. Of course, she's got no shot, not at Mopes, because he's behind the kid, and even if she's any fucking Oakley, with the pump, she's taking half the kid's face, if she pulls the trigger. So she swings the running in toward me, and I jump between her and the kid. Now she's still got the same problem, and I'm praying for a moment of that meth supercomputer clarity so I can figure a way out of this. And what I get is this. The kid doesn't look like Alyssa Milano, not anymore. Not when she's terrified. What she looks like is my daughter. Not that I've talked to my daughter in three years, but sometimes I drive up to La Crosse and park down the block from the school, and I watch her walk home. Sometimes when I do that, I'd have these fantasies that I was going to do the rehab thing and get clean and win her mother back and deserve to be her dad again, but I knew that was never going to happen. And besides, her mother was married to that tin guy now. The guy from down the street, his wife died from cancer just before I got on the powder, so I was never going to be dad again. That doesn't mean I had to be the guy who teed up some 13-year-old for a piece of shit like Mopes. I put my hands out toward Mom, all conciliatory. Look, nobody wants this thing going south. Just stay cool. Let me talk to my boy here. I back toward Mopes. I get to girl. I back towards Mopes and the girl and just the girl saying, Mr. Please, in this throaty little voice, Jesus, she even sounds like my daughter. Mom's closing in, keeping me squirt in the front sight. I get back even with Mopes, me and Mopes and the girl on a tight ball, and Mom keeps closing in. I tell her to back off a bit, not to push it here, it's going to be okay. 
She takes a couple of steps back. I get my mouth right up near Mope's ear. Stay with me, buddy. I tell Mope's, we still got to play here. Yeah, what fucking play is that? And with me to the side now and out of his way, he starts swinging the gun towards the mom. In that moment, a meth clarity finally comes, and I clamp my right hand down hard on top of the 38, wedging the webbing from my thumb between the hammer and the chamber, and the hammer snaps down. Nothing happens except it hurts some. And I whip my left hand up, getting mopes around the head, holding the 38 down the, uh, toward the floor with my right, and I yank mopes up from behind the girl. Mom swings the Remington towards us, and she fires. Most of it catches Mopes right in the chest, except for a few pellets that give me in the arm. Mopes goes down on his back hard, 38 still dangling from my hand. I look back at the mom, and I see the smoke, and I hear a rack the pump. I see the red shell cartwheeling, and then I'm looking right down the business end of the Remington. I realize the mouth of hell is a perfect circle, and I have time to say just one thing before she pulls the trigger. So I say, it's okay. <laughs> Thank you all. Um, let's have another hand for all our readers. All of our readers are available for uh, children's birthday parties, <laughs> uh, church picnics. Jake will do bar mitzvahs. Um, so we'll, um, thank you all so much for coming. Uh, it's great to see all of you here. Uh, be sure to hit the bar again, uh, hit the book table again, and... Uh, We'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Okay, you just heard Heath Lawrence, uh, Dan O'Shea, and then uh, bringing us out of it was uh, Jake Hinkson kind of finishing off the evening and thanking everybody for coming. But all i got to say is that I really, really want some Girl Scout cookies right now. I know, right? Do they have Girl Scouts in your neighborhood? There's not, well, I mean, some people dress dress up like Girl Scouts probably every now and then. Wait, wait hold on a second. So has anybody gone above the store you, you, you live above, knocked on your door and asked if you want to buy Girl Scout cookies? No, no, which okay. surprisingly, I don't know, like, there is a head shop. Not, is, that what, is that what you call it? Uh, is that a drug paraphernalia place? Yes. Yes. Head shop across the street. They sell pipes and stuff like that. You would imagine that the Girl Scouts just set a, a table up outside of there. Oh, and... like like outside of Jewel. Yeah, like that's brilliant, dude. They All right, clean so here's up. what we need to do. Here's what we need to do. We need to get some some Girl Scout uniforms <laughs> and um, and some some thin mints. I love where this is going. And I think you and I should set up shop out there as like the world's oldest, scraggliest looking Girl Scouts. Um, yeah, and since it's in Boys Town. Couple guys dressed up as Girl Scouts. Shit out of some cookies. People think, yeah, people will be lined up like for blocks. Oh, this is such a brilliant idea. I would feel probably a little bit like a whore. Well, the, the, yeah, because that's new to you. Well, that's all right. Did I say that, I say that loud? <laughs> Sorry. All right, back back to business. Um, tiger can't change its stripes, right? Is that is that the? Uh, yes, I think so. Something yeah. like that. Is that a baseball term? <laughs> Yeah, I think it is. Uh, Jake Hankson, if you're listening, thank you for letting us be a part of this and allowing us to record it and bring it to the rest of our listeners. Great time. Absolutely great time. Yeah, glad. Um, I'm hoping that we uh, we have an ongoing relationship with North of Bar Chicago because it's Me not too. a lot of work to get up and talk about other people. Nope, nope, nope. It isn't. So, 
you want to talk about the books you bought? Let me tell you about the books I bought. Hang on. Oh, pl- oh please do. I'm going to my bookshelf right now. Can we talk about how cool Jed Ayers is, by the way? Sure. Can we spend which, a little time? Part? Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about Jed. So uh, you you heard it in the episode. You heard in the like the announcement of this happening. But essentially, so all the bra- authors brought the books that they had available to sell. Um, I happened to pick up two books from Heath, The Axemen of Storyville, which is a book in his series, um, Cash, Laramie, and Gideon Miles series, uh, and another book of his called um, uh, Hawthorne Tales of a Weirder West. Um, from Jed, I kind of finished off my Jed collection with his Fierce Bitches, Peckerwood, and the uh, Dict Anthology. So now I have everything that Jed has been a part of, which is kind of nice. Uh, but what, what Jed did was uh, he brought a giant tub of books for people to buy. Anybody who buys a book from any author could just pull a book out of that tub of, of books that he bought. So I happened to grab Coco Takes a Holiday by Kieran Shea, which I figured great things about. And hopefully, you know, maybe one day when we're not reviewing a book, I can throw it on the to-be-read list. Finally got a hardcover copy of The Lords of Salem by Rob Zombie, really by Brian Evanson, but um, uh, I dug that book a lot, and I'm glad I got a hardcover copy of it. It's a first edition, so hopefully when Brian Evanson is super famous, super more famous than he already is, it's going to be worth some money. I um, I also, um, I only picked up the one book from from Jed um, Packerwood, which we reviewed here last year, last year. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I didn't go in the tub of books because pretty much my paper book collection now is is exclusively, I believe. I think I have it down to it's just books that are um, signed by you know people we met or people we know. But uh, can I tell you that tub of books was interesting because he has some some great books in there I liked. Um, there's some Andrew Vax floating around in there who you know I, I mentioned in the last episode I invited to Noir at the Bar. He did not show up. He did not show up. Nope, nope. Unless he took off the eye patch, and then of course we'd have no idea who he is. So maybe <laughs> he was there, and we just didn't see him. Would have been nice to meet Andrew Vax. He had not show up, but there were some Vax in there. There was that. Um, got a while back, we were talking about oh, what the hell is it called? That that book that the guy from CSI wrote with Dan Swierzynski, Nikki Swierzynski. I'm not gonna yeah. know the name of that book, but I know what level twenty three. Level twenty three. That was sure. in there. So yeah. So I mean, great stuff in there. So. Yeah, and the other cool thing was just meeting new people in general. So people that aren't necessarily authors or, or um, friends that we already have. Uh, one one person I ended up talking to, a guy named John Hooper, was there who uh, no strong affiliation with really anybody at the event, and that's that's kind of a thing that when you're when you go to something like that by yourself, there's a risk of just either a not having fun or b just not getting the vibe of the crowd or anything. Um, so I got to give him props for just kind of showing up, you know, and hoping for the best. Uh, really interesting guy. And we talked for a little bit about, you know, how our paths were going, you know, meeting similar people and things like that. Uh, so uh, it was nice to meet him. And um, hopefully, you know, we'll bump into each other at, at future events and stuff. Or maybe one day we'll be reviewing his stuff. Well, there you go. Always room to review more stuff, right? Yeah. Which brings us to the end of this episode, and you know what we're doing next week, Rob? We are... Are we going to review a book? We are going to review a book, not just any book, though. This is a book that you and I have known about and has been in the works 
pretty much the entire time we've been doing this podcast, I think. <laughs> yeah, um, it's going to be our good friend, good friend of the podcast, longtime friend of the podcast, Richard Thomas, has a book out called Disintegration. Yep, that'll be available at the end of this month. We're hopping on it a little early, um, so we'll let you know uh, what we think, and uh, and we'll let Richard know what we think. We'll let everyone know what we think, because that's what we do. <laughs> so um, until then, I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading.